0: Welcome to Morning Commute, navigating the new treatment landscape in Alzheimer's disease. In this episode, Drawing a Blank, when does a patient's forgetfulness signal a concern it might be Alzheimer's disease? Dr. Marwan Sabah and Dr. Richard Isaacson discuss some of the recent advances in diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash Alzheimer's One. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Sabah is Vice Chairman for Research in the Department of Neurology at Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. Dr. Isaacson is a preventive neurologist at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Boca Raton, Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Sabah will begin our discussion.
1: Hello, I'm Marwan Noel Sabah. I'm professor of neurology and vice Chief research at the Barrow Neurological Institute. Joining me today is Dr. Richard Isaacson, Dr. Isaacson, thank you for joining me this in this podcast series to talk about Alzheimer's disease and some of the recent advances in diagnosis and treatment. Let's start off before we begin. Why don't you introduce yourself, Dr. Isaacson?
2: Sure. Well, Marwan, thanks so much for the invite. Look forward to the conversation. It's always a lively chat between us. Uh, I'm Dr. Richard Isaacson. I'm a preventive neurologist over at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Diseases in Boca Raton, Florida. Uh, and um, I focus on both uh, the treatment of early uh, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, MCI, as well as uh, the uh, risk reduction for people at risk for Alzheimer's disease.
1: So today, our first podcast, uh, Dr. Eisenstein, is we're going to talk about drawing a blank. When a patient walks in the door with forgetfulness, does that signal a concern that it might be Alzheimer's disease? Uh, So let's start out by telling me, give me a recent patient you saw and walk in the door and you're going, you're going down the Alzheimer path or not going down the Alzheimer path? Uh, kind of walk me through your thought processes and things like that.
2: Great question. So actually, uh, it's an interesting case because I saw a couple uh, that both uh, the the husband and the wife uh, both were having symptoms that they felt were concerning, uh, but one was more concerning to me than the other. And it's kind of an interesting parallel. The children were there, they were able to give a a history. Um so uh the wife is a seventy nine year old woman who uh whose mom and grandmother both uh, had Alzheimer's disease and, and the main symptoms that she was having um, are a lot of repetition. Um you know selling telling the same stories uh over and over. Um you know having trouble with with people's names, actually one of the grandchildren's names, which you know having having a trouble with someone's name and it you know, be on the tip of your tongue and you remember it later, you know that 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 may be okay but but you know not remembering a grandchild's name. um she also um was driving home, you know went food shopping stopped off a couple places took a little longer than usual. Uh, for her to get home wasn't clear that she got lost while driving, but it was just didn't really make sense based on the timing about you know all the different um, errands she ran, um, and you know when you hear a history of progressive what sounds like short term memory loss, as well as you know maybe getting lost while driving and forgetting names of familiar people, that seems to me a little bit uh, you know more concerning. Uh, you know the husband uh, had a little bit of a different uh, complaint. Um, he's had some sleep trouble. Um, he's, diagnosed with sleep apnea um and uh you know he he was forgetful and would misplace items but would always find them later and uh really no no real clear progression in anything uh over over the course of the previous year or two so you know to me when when does a patient's forgetfulness signal a concern it might be alzheimers to me alzheimers is a neuropsychiatric disease and you know dementia is when a person um, you know, can no longer take care of themselves, or, or you know, needs assistance with with things. So, in for me, when you have a woman in her late seventies with multiple family members with Alzheimer's, with a progressive history, versus a man with with no family members, he does have some vascular uh, risk factors, um, but also sleep apnea. Um, you know, to me, that's an interesting dichotomy. And um, you know, I, I think it's a you know, not not a perfect case. You know, people with Alzheimer's, uh, when when does it get concerning? neuropsychiatric symptoms problems with uh, you know behavior agitation aggression anxiety depression um as well as you know also aberrations in sleep so um that's kind of a a, a quick clinical problem what do you what do you think about about those that construct
1: uh you know it's funny I think I saw the same couple but I don't think it's just your saying you're a couple <laughs> uh, I saw a couple a couple weeks ago with Ooh. the wife who has a family history, Uh, she is noticing more word-finding difficulty uh, and husband uh, having a little bit of maybe one too many drinks, uh, but uh, they both came in. And uh, so we're going to walk through your thought processes on how you evaluate them here. But the one thing I want to ask you before we get into the thought processes are, uh, do you do any kind of structured Questionnaire of the informant because uh, we use the Alzheimer questionnaire, but I know there's the QDRS, IQ code, AD8. Uh, I am a fan of the Q, AQ Alzheimer questionnaire, but I'm, what what it is an informant based questionnaire are you using any of those informant based questionnaires in your practice?
2: Yeah, so you know, our practice I'm, I'm usually seeing the second and third opinion types, and yeah, too, um, too. I think. Yeah, I think in in, in in a busy practice, either general neurology, even in memory care or, or primary care even, um, you know, a screening tool in the waiting room, something like the 88, 88 is easy, it's eight questions, uh, the caregiver, the informant uh, can can fill it out in the waiting room, and if you answer yes to, you know, several of the questions, then there may be something wrong, and you may need to, you know, take a deeper dive. Uh, with us, you know, uh, you know, we're always getting referrals. So, the primary care doctor had a concern, actually, about the wife and the husband, and Marwan, maybe we did see the same couple because no, he was definitely joking, drinking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, he was drinking too much too, but I didn't mention that during the uh, during the history. And alcohol use, uh, aside from you know messing up sleep, uh, can certainly also cause some some cognitive uh, lapses. Um, but you know, I, I think depending on the practice environment and the subspecialty, you know, I have I have a lot of empathy for for primary care docs and general neurologists that just have a lot. You know, we get a lot of time with patients in a memory environment. You know, an hour for a new patient you know and that that's that's a reasonable amount of time sometimes longer yeah, you too. um it, you know if you only have 15 minutes with a patient doing a quick screen um like with an ad8 is helpful um, the importance of an early and accurate diagnosis is critical and and if you don't ask the questions and don't do the screening you're not going to get there
1: yeah so i same i want to tell you that uh, in my practice when i see a new patient consultation 60 minutes i will do the Alzheimer questionnaire, I'll do a staging scale called the FAST Functional Assessment Staging Scale out of New York, Barry Reesberg Scale. I also do the uh, Louis Body Clinical Rating Scale. I have a dot phrase. My EMR populates a whole uh, HPI that I can kind of walk through and get a lot of questions answered because I agree that if, by the end of the HPI, I'm already thinking, am I going down the Alzheimer road, whether MCI or dementia, or am I going the non-Alzheimer Road, drinking, sleep apnea, depression, et cetera. Uh, and so I agree with you on uh, on kind of uh, using the uh, screening questionnaires to kind of help set the framework. And like you, I'm a tertiary, three, four neurologists later, they're seeing me. They've already had uh, at least a scan of their brain. So let's say you see these patients and what do you do next? Are you what would you do next? Neurocyte testing, imaging, blood work, what would you do next?
2: Yeah, so after taking a detailed history, you know, neurologists, um, you know, like to make a clinical diagnosis based on the history, you know, 80, 90% of the time, I think you can get a pretty good sense. Sometimes things are really confusing. But, you know, we, you know, it's a different time now. And, you know, when we trained back in the, the stone ages before they had electricity, uh, you know, we didn't have these fancy tests. We didn't have MRIs. We didn't have PET scans with, that could label amyloid. and and I sure as heck didn't have, uh, you know, the blood tests that are coming out the spinal, the spinal taps. So nowadays, Alzheimer's disease diagnosis uh, and the differential diagnosis really needs additional, um, you know, biomarkers. But initially we do, uh, you know, a set of labs, uh, you know, we look at cholesterol, we look at blood, we look at B12, we look at um, thyroid function, we do a basic screens. We also look at some nutritional markers because these are things that we can possibly, you know, maybe give some advice about uh, to, to potentially slow progression, you know, heart hard to say. Um, We also do neuropsychological testing, um, really important, getting a well-characterized understanding of, is this a memory problem, an attention problem, speed of processing, you know, what cognitive domains may be effective. You know, in mild cognitive impairment, you can have amnestic or short-term memory predominant Mild cognitive impairment or multi-domain, you know, executive function, etc. So we do, um, you know, neuropsychological testing, um, and then, you know, you know, we we oftentimes get patients that have already had MRIs. I will always look at the actual raw images. And nowadays, it, it's great because a lot of radiologists actually have been making comments if there's. Region-specific atrophy. Is there atrophy in the hippocampus? Is there, you know, temporal atrophy, parietal atrophy, whatever? Um, But I always look at the scans. Um, But but to truly make a definitive diagnosis, um, while um, our group does, um, you know, we I think we may agree on this. We do genetic testing a fair amount. ApoE uh, four testing. If someone has a copy, it increases their risk of Alzheimer's. Just because they have it or don't doesn't mean they have a diagnosis. But I believe in in the power of, of of knowledge and also potentially for. Making treatment decisions later using that um, result, um, but 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 truthfully, biomarkers is is something that that we have to talk about. Um, we have used a lot of the uh, blood tests as a screener, um, not covered by insurance. You know, thousand bucks and change, uh, but uh, it's a way to understand. If if this is positive, then we might as well go forward and try to get insurance coverage or other uh, ways to to cover a more definitive kind of gold standard spinal fluid spinal tap test or. Um, a PET scan, either labeled by amyloid uh, or tau. does uh, that kind of similar to your approach? Uh, do, for example, do you do FDG PETs and any other tests that you uh, really rely on?
1: I I used to love FDG PET. I have stopped using FDG PET of late, except in Lewy body patients. I still try to get a Lewy FDG PET. Uh, but I will say to you that, uh, you know, in my approach, I w- I've i done, again, the nutritional marker thyroid structural imaging, and that's been the diagnosis of exclusion. That comes from our historic approach that you and I have done over the years, which is we always approach Alzheimer's as a diagnosis of exclusion. Your data and my data and our the literature suggests that that is not very accurate. Even in the best circumstances, meaning experts like you and me, it's only right three out of four times and wrong one out of four times. And in primary care, it's wrong one out of three times and right two out of three times. So the clinical diagnostic we using a diagnosis of exclusion is not very accurate, which is why there has been an imprimatur to go toward a diagnosis of inclusion. In the last five months, I have heavily started to build in the uh, plasma amyloid, tau, and neurofilament light. Uh, several companies are start, starting to offer them. I do the, warn them that it may not be covered. I try to put every code in the book I can think of to get it covered give it a shot. I've had a lot of success lately getting it done forty two to forty amyloid p tau one eight one and neurofilament light and I have to tell you I'm finding it to be surprisingly accurate insofar as that I find that when the P tau particularly the P tau is elevated and I go on to do secondary testing, usually it's the secondary testing is confirmatory of being abnormal so what has changed in me in my practice is not simply to do exclusionary approach i am a big fan of neuropsych testing i actually like you i actually a good neuropsychologist is worth their weight in gold yeah. uh and you know and a bad neuropsychologist is keep looking is what i say so you know i actually like to i and my neuropsychologists here i like them to give me the raw data i want to look at the z scores and t scores and scaled scores and all that stuff, and not just look at the punchline. So when it's amnestic, we know, you and I know that if it's a heavily anchored in an amnestic disorder, meaning single and multi-domain amnestic MCI, that's most of the time prodromal Alzheimer's. But when it's not amnestic, that's kind of a mixed bag. And so that kind of moves you in a lot of directions. So yes, neuropsych testing, yes, structural imaging, but I've added the plasma biomarkers. Yeah. Are I- you using any of the, yeah, what are you, are you using the plasma biomarkers?
2: Oh yeah, yeah. We we've been uh early we started uh literally as soon as the amyloid blood tests was out. This is late 2020, we're talking, which is you know, is available in at that time, probably 45, 46 states. We were pretty early adopters. 2021 we were ordering. Uh, you know, now there are multiple um, you know, different carriers, different companies. Um, you know, the, the tricky part is is that um you gotta know what you're looking at and know what you're ordering you know, some of these tests are, I would say, more accurate than others and more dependable yeah. than others. Um, and I'm at the stage now where I'm doing a greatest hits. And if a patient wants uh, as much information as possible, and, you know, is, is you know, if we can get some insurance coverage, or if they're not averse to spending a few hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, again, a PET scan, if not covered by insurance with an amyloid labeling agent is, you know, minimum three to four, more realistically, four to five, five to $6,000, depending on where, where the scan has got between the tracer. And the scan and the reading, uh, you know, spinal fluid tests uh, again can be covered by insurance. Um, uh, there's a procedure. Um, you're very convincing, charismatic. You can get people to say yes to spinal taps a little bit more so than than I can. Um, I love spinal taps. I think it gives great data. But to me, uh, you know, the the the, the phosphotau and the total tau and the, and the amyloid and the, the signature of the of the, the ratio and the, and the other tau markers the spinal tap can be worth its weight in gold. But to me, um, getting, my approach really has been over the last several months, even year, is to get as much plasma biomarker data as I can so I can truly understand where they are in the trajectory. Um, You know, amyloid uh, is important. The amyloid ratio is is key, Uh, but I see a lot of people with amyloid but no tau. Um, I see a lot of, yeah, APOE44 people, you know, have a higher preponderance to make amyloid. Young, healthy people that I think are doing okay but their amyloid comes back borderline. And I say, uh-oh. And then we get a tau 217 or other markers and everything's flat. And, you know, I think our field has been confused or other, or, or I think medical practice has been confused because there are one out of three patients or whatever the numbers are that have amyloid in their brain end up not actually developing dementia later on. And I think there's something, um, you know, about, you know, what, what makes the amyloid and the tau and the neuroinflammation and neurodegenerative what, what, really fast forwards and, and sets off that cascade so to me I, I've I've liked the markers um you know PTAL 217 to me has been you know really what I would say is definitive um I I have not seen a P tau 217 elevation that has not uh end up panning out to be verified on a gold standard um, test um you know amyloid I think is a little bit more confusing the the dynamic range of an amyloid blood test uh it's a little less predictive you can order it one day and it's one value order it it you know, six months later, it's a different value and it's harder to cross compare. Uh, But to me, I also, I like the NFL neurofilament light, which is a marker of neurodegeneration. Um, Also, there's non-Alzheimer's dementias, uh, you know, preclinical slash mild cognitive impairment due to Lewy body. Uh, You can maybe see a little more neurofilament light and maybe a little less tau. And aside from just trying to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, using the plasma biomarkers, I really feel um, can help uh, truly understand a, a deeper picture. Um, will it change management? Well, it may change the diagnostic tests that we order. Will it change how we treat the patients? I think that may be more confusing, but will it really become a part of standard practice? I would say within the next one to three years, it almost has to.
1: Yeah, so a uh, lot to say about what you're uh, from your comments. Uh, I will tell you that I feel like uh, amyloid going down the ratio 42 to 40 ratio. I think, is a leading indicator, and uh, it may even precede the onset of the elevation of tau, If P-tau being a marker of injury. So when the, by the time the P-tau levels are up, uh, that's a, probably a bad thing. That means their brain's probably already injured from the amyloid. I find a neurofilament light to be a lagging indicator, and by the time your NFL is up, your brain is in trouble, because that, to me, is a kind of an end result, uh, neurodegeneration. And I've only had a handful of people with NFL, and their brain—they were already kind of well into their dementia syndrome. So I find it to be a lagging indicator, not a leading one. Of course, we borrow NFL out of the multiple sclerosis world, and that's where you get the injury to begin with. So um, let me say a couple of things about your, uh, from what you talked about. Uh, I actually have had uh, some success recently in getting amyloid PET paid for. Uh, about mm, a month ago, uh, Medicare finished or CMS finished their CED, the Coverage of ev- Evidence Determination. And in the last three or four PET scans that I've ordered, I've gotten paid for and reimbursed. So I'm hey. excited. Although, of course, now I have retired surgeons calling me to ask me uh, for peer to peer, and I'm like, you guys don't know anything about what I'm talking about, so why are you asking me? But that's a separate topic. Uh, my point is, is that uh, I have to, with some restrictions, starting to get a little bit of amyloid PET uh, determination going on. Uh, we'll talk about in the next session. Would you be so willing to do uh, uh, give a patient infusion on the basis of a blood-based biomarker? I will tell you that I would not. I think I need secondary confirmation. Yep. But um, I have been very persuasive, as you're right to point out, with CSF testing. Uh, we can do it in the office or we can do it under IR. Uh, and I basically tell them that if you, they choose when patients ask me, which would I rather have? I'd rather have CSF because I get three markers, not one. If your PET is up, you know it's easy to look at, but it's you don't get as much information as you do from CSF. So let's spend a minute to talk about PET because in bio it's a binary clinical breed as positive or negative. But in the research world, we have the Centiloid scale, the SUVR. I find that PET is easy to read when it's egregiously positive or egregiously negative. What I find is when their SUVR is about 1.05 or 1.1, or the Centiloid scale is about 40, you're like, is that positive? Is it negative? Do I treat, do I not treat? Where I mean, how are you? Are you using PET? And if if let's assume for a moment you could get it paid for. If you're using PET, how would you use it? Would you pick that over CSF testing? Uh, I mean, you're saying you persuasive. Let's let's assume they can be equally persuaded. Would you yeah. prefer PET or CSF? Why? What, give me some thoughts there. Yeah, if
2: if money wasn't an issue and reimbursement was possible, um, to be frank, I I don't I don't like to order too many tests. But if I'm committing a person to a drug, an FDA-approved drug, that's an anti-amyloid therapy, because that's why we're doing these tests, need to have confirmation of amyloid pathology. But if we're gonna be committing a person to coming in either every month or every other week to IV infusion, to MRI surveillance and monitoring, to the the expense of the drugs, the the logistics and operational aspects, um, I actually, to be frank, I want as much information about that person as I can. Uh, and I have, on many occasions, um, tried to get as much information as possible, meaning both an amyloid PET scan and a spinal tap, if that person is willing. The people that I'm that I'm most interested in treating aggressively, uh, I actually like both. So that's that's a, a, an interesting, uh, probably not so commonly held um, opinion. But that way, I can. Um, you know, show and whether it's six, twelve, eighteen months later, whenever we want to repeat uh, biomarker imaging, and that's, you know, a loaded question within itself, um, is there resolution of or or clearance of amyloid on a PET scan, and what is both the amyloid and tau values um in the spinal fluid? Um, and I think it's an open question about how long to treat people on anti-amyloid drugs. and um you you can having that extra tau marker in spinal fluid, you that extra goalpost to kind of understand well the amyloid's gone but the tau is still there or lower than it was but when do we stop so to me um i'm still learning about how to use anti-amyloid drugs in clinical practice i mean i don't have that much experience i have you know a few dozen you know a lot of people in clinical trials but not that many in clinical practice so to me i'm starting off with um trying to cast a broader net of biomarkers so i can learn more and I could try to eventually better treat the patient.
1: Certainly, patients prefer PET because of the non invasive quality. And it's easier, discussion point, frankly, because it's just a picture rather than numerical values. But I find CSF gives me a lot of value too, because I I understand when amyloid is going down and tau is going up and phosphorylated tau is going up, what that means. So in, the, in that way, I actually find the CSF is more informative. but uh, certainly prefer patient prefers the the pet. Uh, and but I will tell you that either way, I would uh, I would use that as the staging to get a patient for a treatment. We are coming up to the end of this session. I do want to ask you, Dr. Isaacson, really, really, about the APOE genotyping because you and I have been on the front end of that conversation for uh, over a decade, a uh, decade and a half. Uh, to the ire and consternation of our peers, who thought we were being dangerous and reckless, and you can I now you and I can say we told you so. So, give me your thoughts about ApoE and genotyping and how you use it. Uh, what are your perspectives on that?
2: Yeah, I'm really glad you brought this up. So, you know, um, as long as the patient understands, and even just a brief counseling session, and of course we have genetic counselors available as needed if people have questions. But you know, we can use ApoE testing. Um, really in an impactful way because people that have two copies of the APOE4 variant about you know 1 maybe 2% of the population are going to be at a, a reasonably higher likelihood of risk a higher chance of risk ARIA we'll talk about this in you know later but um side effects of the anti amyloid drugs now if someone has one copy of the APOE4 variant uh, I'd like to know about it because it may affect my um, you know ten- i'm always tenacious when it comes to monitoring for side effects but you know it may affect the dosing regimen it may affect how i monitor It may affect how often i call a patient or or have my my staff call and check in or check in with the caregiver um people with two copies of the APOE4 variant i you know i, I don't want to use a, a harsh term like it's malpractice not to order an apoe 4 four that that's that's a little too much maybe but it's just better medicine. It's just, you know, you know what you're up against. You know what the risk tolerance may be. You know what the potential, you know, in the studies that, you know, the the percentage of people that have a side effect on the anti-amyloid drugs who are E4 positive is is much higher than the people that are E4 negative. It's helpful to know that. It's also helpful to to counsel the patient before we start. So they know the pretest potentially probability of actually like, you know, having a side effect, and and is it worth it to to try it? So, I don't know. From my perspective, I, I think it's, I wouldn't treat a patient uh, with an anti-amyloid drug without it.
1: I agree. And we're going to use it for, you know, it's moved from being a proxy diagnostic because uh, uh, APOE4 carrier is clearly associated with amyloid positivity. But now we're using it for risk stratification, which I would like to circle back in our next uh, podcast because uh, we do need to talk about APOE and risk stratification. Uh, so uh, with that, I wanted to say thank you for your time in this uh, podcast. Uh, we Today we're talking about uh, when, how do you assess patients' forgetfulness and it does it signal a concern that it might be Alzheimer's disease? We talked about mild cognitive impairment, we talked about dementia, we talked about biomarkers, plasma, CSF, and PET biomarkers, and selecting patients appropriately. So. Thank you all for your time, and we look forward to giving you another podcast in the near future. Thanks so much, Marlon.
0: Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash Alzheimer's One. You can find all of our episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.